Welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast, and I'm your host, Zach McCulley. Today, my guest is Dr. John Wilsey, and we're talking about his new book just released this month with Erdman's titled God's Cold Warrior, The Life and Faith of John Foster Dulles. Dr. Wilsey, welcome to the show. Thank you, Zach. I appreciate you having me on. Well, you've written a thoughtful biography of Dulles, who was President Eisenhower's Secretary of State in, in the 1950s. He's really a towering figure in American foreign policy during that decade. And, you know, as, as I was reading, you kind of allude to this at the beginning, that there's something of a balance of excitement and then also burden when you're writing about someone whose who's contacts were kind of complex, because on the one hand, there's a sense of freedom to ask questions and, and uncover answers that haven't been asked or, or, or answered. But on the other hand, you bear a sense of responsibility to do that, that untangling work faithfully and, and honestly. And, um, and that's what you've done here, considering Dulles and his, and his political career, but also his faith and, and upbringing, which, which developed and was clearly nuanced. Um, and, and that faith played no small part in his understanding of God and country, you know, the responsibility of American government and fights against tyranny. Um, it's, it's really thoroughly researched work that you've done. Uh, but before we talk about what you've written, could you first tell us some about yourself and, and maybe also what led to this writing project? Yeah, Zach. Well, uh, again, thank you so much for having me on and, and thanks to the new books network for having me on. It's a great privilege and honor to, to be with you. Um, I, uh, I teach at Southern, uh, Baptist Theological Seminary and, um, I've been teaching, uh, I've been teaching history um, for most of my adult life in one way or another. Um, taught middle school and high school history. I, I taught Bible. Um, I was a school principal. I was a uh, I was a pastor uh, about twenty years before I became an academic. <clears throat> and um, then in twenty eleven, I went to teach at um, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary for. Uh, uh, about six years, uh, taught history and philosophy there, and um, and I came to uh, to Southern in uh, in 2017, and I had the the great privilege of um, having the chance to go and be a visiting fellow at the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton in the year 2017 through 18, and my project uh, during the course of that year was to uh, be in the archives and uh, there at Princeton at the Mudd Manuscript Library and and study and study John Foster Dulles. His papers are are housed uh, there at that archive. Um, almost 650 boxes of uh, materials there in his archive, and as well as uh, uh, hundreds of um, oral history interviews that uh, I spent the year enjoying um, immersing myself in that in that archive and getting to know that archive really well. Also went to uh, the Presbyterian Historical Society archive down in Philadelphia, spent quite a bit of time down there uh, looking into uh, Dulles's work, particularly with the Federal Council of Churches. Um, so those those two archives were, were really great, uh, really wonderful resources for me as I did this project. I got interested in Dulles when um, I was actually writing my uh, my second book, uh, American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion. I wrote a chapter about America's mission in the world as it had been conceived over time. Um, and my my frame of reference, my sort of my historical point of reference when I wrote that chapter was was Dulles. And uh, that's that's when I got interested in, in John Foster Dulles. Um, I had certainly been exposed to Dulles um, going back to undergraduate days, but writing that chapter was my first, the first time I'd ever really considered him and his, um, his life and his uh, religious beliefs and how they bore on his foreign policy positions. And I was actually talking to uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Philip Luke Sinatier, who is a, a historian of African-American history. and um, he had read um, my manuscript of that chapter 
um, for me to, you know, talk it, talk it through with me. And he said, you know, you really ought to write a, a religious biography of uh, John Foster Dulles. And I thought that was a good idea. And so I, uh, I put a proposal together and, and, and here we are. <laughs> so <laughs> well, it was fun. It was actually because I, 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 my father has a fishing cabin in Montana and, um, it's out in the middle of nowhere. There's no electricity. There's no running water or anything like that. So I actually went to, uh, that fishing cabin for about three weeks and wrote the proposal and wrote a sample chapter, brought a, I brought a Tupperware full of books and articles and things and, and um, moved into that to that cabin for three weeks and hold myself up and, and wrote, the, <laughs> wrote the sample chapter. It's pretty, it pretty fun. Yeah, it was pretty memorable. <laughs> well, maybe if we can make one more stop before discussing your chapters, because I think this is important too, and it, and it comes out well in your writing. Um, you're a Christian historian. Uh, can you tell us what it means to approach the past as a Christian and maybe maybe that how that influences how you're interpreting subjects like like Dulles in particular? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I write about this in my introduction. I think it's important for um, you know for for me as a, as the biographer to kind of lay my cards out on the table for the audience to let them know, hey, this is what you're gonna be getting. Um, I uh, approach this subject uh, with something of a Christian ethic in mind um, when I'm handling a life um, and the life of a person who is is now dead. You know, he's no longer with us. Um, you know, it, it's it's a sensitive kind of a thing. You know, this this is a man's life. Um, he still has relatives um, who are living today. Um, I got to know a cousin of his pretty well in the course of my research. And, you know, um, um, the, you know, the, the family is still, I mean, just like our families, family is very important to, to, uh, her, to this cousin. And it, it, it mattered to her, you know, how I was going to handle this life in her family, in her family history. This is a real person. It's not just an abstraction. And so you mentioned something about handling it responsibly earlier in your comments. And, um, I think as a, as a Christian, I have a, a particularly salient duty to handle a, a life that is passed with, with grave responsibility um, in order to demonstrate um, something of a love for the dead. Um, there's a great article in um, a book edited by John Fia. Eric Miller and Jay Green called Confessing History. In that book, there's an essay by a um, historian by the name of Beth Barton Schweiger called Seeing Things. And in that article, she argues that um, the historian has the responsibility to show love for the dead, love in an Augustinian sense, um, where the dead are a source of contemplation. And um, you, you don't seek to try to use the life of a dead person for some purpose. You, you simply delight in the, delight in the fact that she said that, that they are there. Uh, I think, I think it's beautiful. I think that's, it's really, um, it's really moving and I think it's rather poignant as well. And it's, um, it's, it's also a great treat to look into the archives and, and, actually go through somebody's mail. I mean, that's really what I was doing. It's what a biographer does is go into diaries and letters and very private things. You know, you, on the one hand, uh, it's easy to sort of think, uh, you know, what if you were doing this for, for, what if I was doing this to you, you know, Zach, you know, going through your personal, uh, letters between you and your wife. I mean, I don't know how you, you probably wouldn't feel comfortable with that. Um, and nevertheless, here I am reading his letters to his wife when they were newlyweds. Um, <laughs> um, very, you know, very personal things that, uh, you know, you need to you need to treat that responsibly. You kind of need to recognize that um, you don't have all the information. You do have a great deal of resources there, but you don't have everything. You Your knowledge is still limited. But then on the other hand, too, you do have hindsight you do have perspective that he never had on different events that were happening in his life 
you knew you like I know how things turned out. He did not know when he was making his decisions. So you have to show a little bit of humility and a little bit of charity and a little bit of empathy when you're writing about a life like that. Yeah, I think that was really helpful laying that out early in the book. And well, as we as we turn now to the book, you you mentioned that that Foster Dulles's life it's largely been forgotten or at least oversimplified, even though he was pretty highly regarded in his own day. Why has he become forgotten? And and maybe also, why do you think we should care to know who he is today? I think um, in some ways, um, I think in some ways that uh, either the field of American history or uh, also the American people would, would sort of like to forget John Foster Dulles in some ways. Um, he represents a period of our history that is in the popular imagination um, repudiated in many ways. So the 1950s, uh, you know, you have people have very uh, divergent views on the 50s in just in the popular imagination. You know, some people think of the 50s as being, you know, the golden age in American history. You know, um, leave it to beaver, you know, people were religious, went to church, you had a stable society, you didn't have people riding in the streets and that kind of thing. You also have a um, pretty ugly period in American history, too. You have segregation, you have Jim Crow, Emmett Till, you know, you have, uh, you know, uh, Rosa Parks being pushed around on the bus and um, she makes her stand and, and it's beginning a civil rights movement, but it's pretty, it can be a pretty ugly period of history, too. And one of those ugly periods of history, one of those ugly points of history in the 50s is, our, is the beginning of our involvement in Vietnam. And that takes place under the Eisenhower administration. And uh, certainly, certainly Foster Dulles was uh, deeply interested in Americans being engaged in Vietnam. And so our uh, experience in Southeast Asia was uh, was largely um, the, the, the doing and the planning of, um, John Foster Dulles. I think Americans would like to forget that in some ways. Um, by the time you get to this, to the sixties and seventies, Dulles is no longer an admired secretary of state. Um, he gets a lot of blame for our failures in Southeast Asia. I think that's a big thing. I think that's a huge part of, um, the story, the narrative for sure, but it's also a big part of the way that Americans imagined him in, in his life and remember him. Some critical biographies came out shortly after his death, 10 years after his death, and right around the time of the American withdrawal from Vietnam. Uh, Townsend Hoops wrote a book called The Devil and John Foster Dulles. That kind of gives you an indication of how he felt about John Foster Dulles. Um <laughs> Leonard, Leonard Mosley wrote a book on the family, on Eleanor John Foster and Alan Dulles. It was pretty critical. Um, those two books came out in the 70s. Um, and those are, those are really those are excellent um, biographies. They're deeply researched and um, very carefully thought through, but they are they're negative. You know, they're not sympathetic to him at all. Um, and so I think, you know, it's time for a fresh look at John Foster Dulles. We've had some distance from those days and also his religion, um, his, you know, what uh, what role does his religion play in, in his own personal formation? And how can we understand this, you know, this figure, this person who exists in our imagination, often as an abstraction, a secretary of state or you know, an international attorney or, you know, a, dip, a diplomat, a cold warrior. Um, well, he was a man. And, you know, how is he formed as a man? And by the time he gets to the office of secretary of state, what, what, uh, you know, what presuppositions form his worldview? And why does he approach the international problems of the 50s in the way that he does? Those are some of the things I'm trying to get after. Yeah. And it, and it is a book about his religious commitments and, and how he articulated those beliefs in, in practice as 
as a churchman and, and a statesman. Well, you identify five belief patterns that take shape in his career. Uh, tell us what these patterns of religious belief were. And, um, and you know, was he consistent in them as, as context change? Yeah, he, these are, these are patterns that uh, you see emerge um, pretty much throughout, throughout his, his, his adult life, beginning, you know, developing in his, in his childhood and teenage and informative years. And then, you know, really, really developing over time. They change over time and they change with context, but these things are pretty consistent. Um, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to just read those five. That'd be great. Okay. As our narrative unfolds, we will see that five patterns of religious belief emerged and took shape as Foster's thought and career developed. Those belief patterns simply stated were, one, the dynamic prevails over the static. Two, Christianity's essence is operational rather than theological. Three, moral law is supreme and the power of moral forces is irresistible. Four, dynamic change means that peace must be actively waged like war. And five, nature reflects a morally ordered world. So let me just walk through those. I mean, so the dynamic prevails over the static from his very early years as a as a undergraduate at Princeton. Uh, Foster was a philosophy major, and he was very interested in pragmatism, pragmatism of William James and, and Charles Peirce, John Dewey. And in fact, he wrote a couple of major papers. He wrote his senior thesis while at Princeton on pragmatism called The Theory of Judgment, where he has a running engagement with Western thought, and particularly the thought of the pragmatists. And he went to study at the Sorbonne in, um, in France after he went to Princeton. And he studied under Henri Bergson, and he studied pragmatism. So he became convinced in those early years of his life that change is the pattern of life, not, not, um, not the static. Um, and because change is the pattern of life, you always have conflict. Um, and so he uh, saw this tension between this, this, the static and the dynamic in the circumstances that he was living through. He saw them play out in the First World War. He saw them play out in the Depression. He saw them play out in the Second World War, and he was seeing, the play, seeing them play out in the emerging uh, conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, he was, uh, he grew up in a liberal Presbyterian household. His father was a pastor and a theologian. Um, his father ended up going to teach at Auburn Theological Seminary in Auburn, New York, when he went to Princeton in 1904. He took part in the Presbyterian controversy on the modernist side. This was both, both his father and, and John Foster Dulles both took part in that controversy. And so Dulles was not interested in, the, in, in Christianity as a set of doctrines. He was not interested in theology. He thought that Christianity was an ethical code, which, you know, that's, that's pretty standard fare for Protestant liberal Christianity at the, in the early 20th century. And that, that held pretty steady throughout his life. Um, he talked about moral law all the time. This is another kind of element of his liberal Christianity. Um, he thought that God had ordained moral laws in the universe. They were irresistible. And, you know, we, we see those play out in human relationships, but we also see them play out in the natural world. I'll get to that in a second. Um, dynamic change means that peace must be actively waged like war. One of the things that Dulles used to always say was that, um, you know, nations mobilize for war. But then when peace comes, they get complacent. When peace comes, people, you know, turn inward and let their guard down. But in order to have a lasting peace, Dulles believed that nations had to mobilize for peace. They had to, um, they had to organize themselves for peace. They had to think about what peace is and what war is and what are the causes of war and what are the causes of peace and pursue those things. And so in the, when he was Secretary of State, he believed that one of those things was to organize collective security, 
and that the United States could not confront the Soviet Union by itself everywhere in the world. So organized collective security arrangements like NATO, like CETO, Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, like ANZUS, um, treaty organi- uh, the treaty uh, or a security uh, pact between Australia, New Zealand, and the United States, um, the U.S.-Japan uh, security ar- uh, uh, arrangement, and then CENTO, which was a failed um, attempt at a, at a peace treaty between Middle Eastern countries and the, and the U.K. and the United States. Anyway, so this is one of the ways in which you want to maintain the peace. You have to actually pursue it. You have to wage it. It was it was a very uh, very Delizian, uh, Del- <laughs> if, I, if I may coin a term, uh, idea. Uh, and and Eisenhower w- w- believed it too. He, in fact, named his he titled his autobiography "Waging Peace." Um, both he and Dulles had deep agreement on that. And then lastly, nature reflects a morally ordered world. You know, for all of his life, Dulles was uh, an outdoorsman. This is something that is is really not, it's really understudied in the biographies. But it's a, there's a very rich history of his engagement with the outdoors and his archives and his papers. It's fascinating. He was a sailor. He loved to sail. He had a 40-foot yawl that he took out in the Great Lakes and in the Atlantic Ocean uh, during the 1930s. Um, he sailed on, uh, on, on cruises about probably 25,000 nautical miles total of during those years. And he also owned an island out in the middle of Lake Ontario, a thousand acre island called Maine Duck Island. And then also there's a neighboring island next to it called Yorkshire Island that he also owned. And he had a cabin out on that island, and he and his wife Janet would spend a great deal of time out there. His youngest daughter, or his youngest child, his only daughter, Lilius, she and her uh, husband actually spent their honeymoon on that island when they first got married. There was only one way to get out there. Well, there are two ways. You get get out there by, by boat, but usually he'd get out there by seaplane. Um, and they would stay out there for weeks at a time. Um. He would, he loved nature. He loved the outdoors, but it was more than just, you know, like a vacation for him. He, he saw the outdoors and nature as being a classroom to learn how to approach problems in human interaction. So he found a lot of parallels between challenges you face, say, out on the, out on the uh, Great Lakes in a sailing vessel, uh, in a storm, um, those challenges um, have the same lessons that, um, you know, you learn in diplomacy. So Dallas was a fascinating man. His, his religion was dynamic, you know, if I could borrow a term that he liked to, to use. It, it was dynamic in the sense that it was adaptable. He would adapt his religious views according to, you know, what crisis he was facing. And sometimes his commitments to religious beliefs would ebb and flow. You know, there'd be a long period of his life there, there in the, in the twenties and thirties that he wasn't really interested in, in, um, a public faith. He went, went to church whenever he could, but, um, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't all that religious during those years, but then he kind of has something of an awakening in 1937, um, as world war II is getting, is getting, or, you know, looking like it's coming, coming along the pike. So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So his, his religion is, is very, uh, it, 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 there are some consistent things that are there that you can see develop in his life, but, um, it, it does, it ebbs and flows over time. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, I think that I, I think that's really helpful. Um, laying out those patterns, and because um, that, that 
the, those patterns of belief are, you know, they, they, as you say, kind of stay with him and, uh, through his career and, um, and yeah, so I think, I think that's really helpful. Well, uh, you mentioned that Dulles was brought up in a Christian home. What can you tell us about his early years? Um, cause it's quite hard to understand who he was as an adult, um, without reference to his beginning and, and, and also to his family history, isn't it? I, I think so. I think it's um, very difficult to make sense of his life and his, um, his bearing on American diplomatic history without reference to his upbringing. His, um, his upbringing was very important. Family was very, very important um, to his, uh, the way he saw himself and the way he saw the world. Um, he was raised by, as I said, in a in a Christian um, home, but it, but it, you know, his father was a pastor, so he was raised in a parsonage. <laughs> he was a pastor's kid, and uh, his father was the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Watertown, New York, which is still there. Um, you can go to uh, that church uh, this Sunday morning if you want. It's uh, still a still a lively church there in Watertown, New York. Um, he, um, Dulles was born in 1888 and he was born in the home of his grandfather, um, his mother's father. Um, so his mother and father were staying at, uh, John Watson Foster's home in Washington, DC. And she had the baby in her father's house. She had Foster in her father's house in Washington in the middle of a, of a big snowstorm. Um, in, in, um, February of 1888. And so, um, he kind of grew up in two worlds. He grew up in that sort of provincial town in the North country of New York in a, uh, deeply sort of liberal Presbyterian environment, but he was also raised by John Watson Foster, who was a second father to him. Um, Foster, uh, John Watson Foster was a diplomat. He had been Secretary of State under Benjamin Harrison, and he was um, uh, very important. Um, um, he was uh, a diplomat, sort of on contract um, with China in the uh, First Sino-Japanese War, the Treaty of Shimonoseki. He was there for that. Um, he also had a lot of different activities as um, minister to Mexico, to Russia, to Spain. So John Watson Foster was um, an international uh, attorney and a diplomat. And by the time John Foster Dulles was born, you know, he was um, kind of an internationally renowned figure. And so through John Watson Foster, John Foster Dulles, his grandson, um, was able to see the world through the lens of, um, you know, this man who had this very worldly cosmopolitan outlook and a very, you know, noteworthy career already. And he was introduced into Washington society and into um, also uh, the legal world. Um, he got his job at Sullivan and Cromwell through the help of his grandfather, um, he would become the managing partner at Sullivan and Cromwell in Manhattan at a very young age. Um, and so, you know, he, would it, have, you know, would, would we even have had a John Foster Dulles, a secretary of state, John Foster Dulles without, you know, um, the influence of his grandfather, John Watson Foster, you know, probably not, <laughs> um, other, you know, without those um, Washington connections, family connections, and, and so forth, um, you know, Foster Dulles would have been a kid growing up in the North Country of New York, and that would have been it. Uh, on the other hand, too, his father was this uh, was this liberal theologian, very you know, uh, deeply uh, thoughtful man, um, and you know, it was a uh, was a, a scholar. Uh, as well as a pastor, and so he was given a a particular kind of worldview, religious worldview, inculcated in him when he was a child. 
Uh, Dulles had um, uh, brothers and sisters. Um, he had he was one of of, of uh, five children, and um, their lives together um, in the North Country of New York were sort of arranged around um, a routine uh, of a pastor's life. So they heard a lot of sermons. They'd heard three sermons on Sundays. Um, they loved to sing hymns, you know, around the piano as, fa- as a family on Sundays. Um, and those patterns too, even when, when Foster was an adult not going to church, he didn't allow his own children to sing, you know, like secular songs on a Sunday. <laughs> it was a time for singing hymns. Hymns were um, particularly uh, dearly loved by John Foster Dulles when he was on his deathbed, dying at Walter Reed Hospital in 1959. He, um, he and his family and friends would gather around and sing him hymns that he loved from his childhood. Um, so I think that that's something else that's overlooked in the, in, in the biographies. Of course, all the biographers talk about his, his family, his, his forebears, because they are so noteworthy. But um, I don't think too many biographers answer the question about, well, you know, what is the significance to, the, to his life, to his worldview? Um, so I go into some detail uh, on that. In fact, I devote the whole first chapter to uh, his mother and his father and his grandfather. Um, and I don't even talk about Foster at all in that chapter. I talk about his family. Um, so like many of us, you know, we, we are, we are a continuation of those who, you know, went before us and we're a product of their influence. And that's certainly true for John Foster Dulles. Well, what was his, his religion like when, when he moved on to Princeton? Was it any different than, than what he had experienced while he was back at home? Yeah, it's really, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, Foster Dulles has a, kind of an attitude towards the church and to faith that a lot of kids do when they go off to college. You know, they might have been raised in a church setting and, you know, go to youth group and all that stuff and be active in the church and they go to college and they don't go to church. <laughs> you know, a lot of times people think that that's a, you know, that's like a, a dynamic that we see today and kind of unique to our own times. Uh, when I was a pastor, I remember parents being all um, alarmed at this. Oh, this is terrible. Look at all, you know, none of the kids that come out of the youth group, they, they all they all go secular, you know, uh, when they go to college. Well, that happened to him. That happened to John Foster Dulles back in 1904 to 1908 when he was at Princeton. So I don't know that it's a particularly unique uh, dynamic we see in our world. I think it's just kind of probably human nature. Um, he gets away from his parents, you know, he, he gets, um, he gets out and makes his own life and, um, he has to make religion his own, right? He has to make his commitment to the church his own and not just his parents. Certainly he was very involved in church and involved in things for young people. He was part of a, a society at his church called the, uh, uh, the Christopher club, which was something like a, um, local missions organization. Uh, Bible reading organization for for kids and teenagers. He was actually the president of it when he was a senior in high school. But, but you know, when he went to when he went to Princeton, he didn't he didn't really go to church. Um, and you know, his faith was not something he really ever talked about very much. Um, and he didn't really want to be a pastor. You know, his his parents wanted him to be a pastor when he when he you know grew up, and he had decided by his junior year, that he didn't want to do that. He wanted to be a lawyer. He wanted to be a Christian lawyer. That's what he called it. But he didn't want to be a pastor. He didn't want to go into ministry. He wasn't interested in that. And he was rather ambivalent about his faith, really from the time he went to Princeton until, you know, um, probably the late 30s. Now, it's not, not to say that he wasn't involved in church. He was an elder at his church in the 20s and 30s. Um, Park Street Presbyterian Church in New York. He was an elder at that church that later merged with Brick Presbyterian Church in the 30s. But, uh, you know, not until 1937 did he have 
this awakening when he went to England to to the Oxford Ecumenical Conference, and he saw that when the churches got together to deal with international problems, they could unite around practical and moral principles and get past their doctrinal disagreements. And that's when he really became um, personally and publicly invested in the faith. Can, could you could you spend some time talking about that that, that year, nineteen thirty-seven, and and what what how that changed the way he was thinking about um, about how how Christians could could influence things across the world? Yeah, sure. I mean, he. Um, I talk about that in my chapter that I entitled Work for the Night is Coming. That's actually the title of a hymn that he loved. And um, he um, he got interested in foreign policy and sort of being a world order theorist way back in World War One. But he began to write about world events and challenges in world events starting in the mid-30s, 1935. Um he, when he thought about world problems, he, he didn't think about really them in a religious frame of reference until he went to this Oxford Ecumenical Conference in 1937. And when he went to that, I mean, that conference was an international conference. There were representatives from, you know, um, all you know, countries all over the world, not just England and America. And there were representatives from the entire Christian world. So all the denominations, all the major denominations in the world sent, um, uh, you know, sent diplomats to this uh, conference. And he wrote a paper that he delivered at that conference. His paper was called The Problem of Peace in a Dynamic World. So he wrote this paper, The Problem of Peace in a Dynamic World. And he came away from that conference. He expected that conference to be, you know, a bunch of uh, a, a bunch of church people getting together and sort of talking parochial, parochially about, um, you know, how the problems affected, you know, their churches or their countries. Um, he expected these representatives to be divided over doctrine because um, he had witnessed that during the Presbyterian modernist. Uh, controversy, fundamentalist modernist controversy in the 20s. He expected it to be really just kind of a waste of his time. But um, the conference really um, was none of that. Uh, People had gathered together and they got creative about how to deal with Japanese expansionism and Italian and German fascism. Um, And he was able to participate in that conference. And he became convinced that the churches were absolutely indispensable to um, maintaining a peaceful world order. Without the churches, that the world would, would constantly be at war because the churches form the consciences of policymakers. And so if the churches can be faithful to form those consciences along the lines of the ethic of Jesus Christ, as revealed in the New Testament, then you have a chance at maintaining a peaceful world order where you can mitigate the effects of, you know, hyper-nationalism and hubristic nationalism, where nations are only interested in their in pursuing their, their own national interests to the exclusion of others in sort of a Hobbesian state of nature. Instead, you know, um, the churches have a role to play in forming those, those uh, consciences of policymakers to um, think about the nations as existing in a community, uh, that um, a community that is governed by moral laws, um, that, and those moral laws are common to all and they're invincible. So that means that, you know, the resources in the world, they're not just for one nation. They're not just for the most powerful nations. They are for everyone, right? So these are some examples of ways that he was thinking about the role of the churches, the role of religion in diplomacy. And when World War II broke out in 1939, especially when France fell, he really woke up to the need to be, to be deeply involved in thinking about what the post-war world would look like. 
whether you had an allied victory or an axis victory, um, the church was going to be needed. The voice of the church was going to be necessary in order to, um, you know, either mitigate the effects of a Nazi victory or in the case of an allied victory to establish a lasting peace where there wouldn't be another world war. This is the second, this would be the second one that he'd seen in his lifetime. And he wanted to, um, engage the church, uh, and have the church be engaged rather in the construction of a post-war order that would be just, and that justice would be durable. Some a phrase that he used all the time, a just and durable peace. Do you think it would be fair to say that, that Dulles was a Christian nationalist? Did, did he think America was, was specifically chosen, uh, by God to, to do these things? He did think that. Um, he did think that, but he did go through, you know, a lot of evolution in the way that he thought about, about that. But, but by the time he's secretary of state, he does believe that God has chosen America to confront the Soviet threat, the threat of, you know, uh, communism that was, um, certainly led by and animated by, uh, Moscow. Um, and he wanted to have this international world order that was informed by the moral law, you know, informed by the Christian ethic where you have, uh, you know, justice sort of reigning among the community of nations and all this. But he believed that the Soviets were standing in the way of that ideal. So he, he always believed in that ideal. He never let go of that ideal, but he believed that the Soviets presented um, an obstacle to that goal and that before that goal could be realized, the Soviet threat had to be dealt with. And he thought that because starting in 1945, he saw the Soviets, um, you know, standing in the way, for example, of settling, um, you know, kind of mopping up and settling um, the issues that were outstanding from the end of World War II. So boundary disputes in Eastern Europe, you know, spheres of influence between the West and the East, um, you know, um, in Europe, but also also in the Pacific with, with regards to Japan, uh, with regards to Southeast Asia, with regard to the dissolution of the colon old colonial empires. The Soviets were in the, in the United Nations they were always trying to stand in the way of, um, you know, establishing a just and durable peace. This was in Dulles's mind. And they seemed to only be interested in aggrandizing as much power and influence as they could for themselves to the exclusion and the expense of, of smaller countries who couldn't defend themselves in the face of this gargantuan Soviet threat. So he did not think, by 1946, very early on, he didn't think the Soviets were trustworthy, thought the Soviets were, li were, were liars, that they lied all the time, that they um, were tyrannical, that they wanted to hold the world hostage, and that the United States was the only country that had the moral capability of confronting the greatest threat that humanity had ever seen. But he believed that the United States would be successful in this because uh, communism was atheistic. It was opposed to the moral law. The United States was a Christian nation. And it fought with weapons that were moral and spiritual. And moral and spiritual weapons can never, um, uh, can never be uh, defeated by physical weapons and physical threats. That's helpful. Um, you know, probably the, the pinnacle of Dulles's career was serving as secretary of state for Eisenhower. And you say these were the most consequential years of his life. Um, you mentioned that this period in his life, it probably deserves a book length treatment, but tell us how you just briefly, how you, how you treat these years in, in, in your book, especially, um, especially the strategy he had of, of massive retaliation, which, which became a career defining idea for him, didn't it? It, it did. It did. It's, uh, it's probably what he's most known for today. Um, 
So you, you probably noticed as you read the book that, um, you know, I spent a great deal more time talking about Dulles's life from his early years to um, 1953, and I spent comparatively little time on his years as Secretary of State. And that was intentional, actually. Um, my, my approach to the book was to um, familiarize the reader with Dulles as a man who's entering into that office. And then I'm kind of relying on the historiography to do the rest of the, the water carrying for me. Um, you know, once, once a, a reader has been introduced to Dulles in this book, then the reader is in a, a great position to read books on the Cold War, you know, and books on Dulles by Richard Emmerman or um, John Lewis Gaddis uh, and, and others. Um, I do spend a chapter talking about his years as Secretary of State and talk about massive retaliation. There's a section there on massive retaliation, for sure. Um, but, um, you know, uh, the book is a religious biography and not a diplomatic history. I'm not a diplomatic historian, so um, that's really not the aim of the book, is to get into the into the details of his engagement in the various crises, the Suez crisis, the, the Kwe Matsu crisis, um, crisis in Lebanon, um, the beginning of the, of the space race, the launching of Sputnik, um, or even, um, even America's activities, um, overthrowing the government in Guatemala or Iran and covert activities all over the world. Those, all those issues, um, if the reader wants to learn about, you know, the ins and outs of those issues as they, as they unfold, this is not the book for them, right? But this book does hopefully uh, establish who was at the helm <laughs> and what made him tick um, when he was, you know, uh, helping direct American activities all, all over the world in the 50s. A massive retaliation, this is um, a popular expression. Um, it was, um, you know, the formal name of the American foreign policy under Eisenhower was called New Look. And um, it was basically a policy of deterrence. I tell the story in the chapter on um, Dulles' years as Secretary of State about how his thoughts developed on deterrence. And... As I said, I indicated earlier in the interview that he didn't believe that the United States could confront the Soviets alone. Um, and he also didn't believe that even just the Western, the great Western powers, France, the British, the United States, would be able to face the Soviets alone. In order to, in order to combat um, Soviet expansionism, the best way to approach that problem was to arrange collective security um, treaties um, and organize the free world um, against the Soviets to contain the Soviets, to isolate the Soviets, and to have the Soviets give a great deal of pause before they, you know, um, launched any kind of campaign of either subversion or open aggression against the free world. So, for example, he said uh, at one point, um, he said, the free should not be numbed by the vast graveyard of human liberties in Russia, Eastern Europe, and Asia. He said, it is the despots who should feel haunted. They, not we, should fear the future. <laughs> I love that statement. Yeah, it's pure Dulles. Um, he thought that with collective security, you know, you pool your resources, you pool your strength. And in collective security arrangements all over the world, the Soviets will, will know that they don't have, a, they really have no prayer of success um, anywhere in the world. Because everywhere in the world that they might uh, seek to advance, either, again, by subversion or by open aggression, that each each single collective security arrangement would be too strong for them to overcome. And that's really kind of the theory behind massive retaliation. 
And that whole idea of collective security that um, Dulles imagines, collective security is based upon the many uh, times or the many kind of ways that he framed the idea of international cooperation and internationalism, economically and politically. Ideas that he had been advocating for since the 20s. Collective security was internationalism. It is international cooperation, economically and militarily and politically, with a particular kind of aim in mind. And that is, you know, resisting communism, hemming it in, keeping it isolated, and ultimately suppressing it and suffocating it. Um, so massive retaliation is not um, Dulles kind of being like Dr. Strangelove, you know, kind of rejoicing and blasting, um, you know, communist uh, armies and cities into oblivion with hydrogen bombs. It's, uh, it's more of a deterrence strategy, more of a way to prevent war rather than to, uh, you know, start a war. I mean, Dulles was not in favor of preventive, pre preventive war, um, you know, or, you know, something like what we did in Iraq in 2003. Um, none of that was what Dulles was ever advocating for. Yeah. Yeah. I think you explained that really helpfully. Um, it doesn't seem like he thought, you know, like evil could come in and, and, and steal these, you know, steal liberty and freedom like that. And he was yeah. really concerned with, with, with with security maybe as much or more than he was concerned about peace and yeah and um, i should say i mean i should say that this is a theory that he pursued the way the theory worked out in real time sometimes you know was more complex than that so for example in the dn Mian, uh, dien bien phu crisis in 1954 when the Viet Minh were about to overwhelm the french fortress at dn bien phu and on what's now North Vietnam. Dulles was, uh, you know, Dulles was in favor of very active American participation. He was in favor of airstrikes. Um, he was in favor of the use of nuclear uh, weapons, tactical nuclear weapons, um, you know, in sort of a limited way. So it's not that Dulles was uh, just not, um, you know, he didn't back away from, the use of threats and he didn't back away from the idea of using nuclear weapons. He, he thought nuclear weapons were um, something you could use, something you could turn to. Um, and Eisenhower agreed with him. Eisenhower, he actually made the statement at, at one point in his presidency that, you know, a nuclear weapon is like a bullet or a bomb or of any, you know, of any form. It's a, it's in your, it's in your arsenal. You use it. <laughs> it's not until much later that, you know, the, that nuclear weapons are really backed away from and seen as a last resort. And the doctrine of mutual assured destruction is sort of established later. Mm -hmm. So anyway, all that to say that Dulles's views on collective security were pretty, you know, were, were, were pretty multifaceted, but um, sometimes, you know, um, the, the theory and the practice did, did diverge. Well, that's, that's, that's a helpful clarification there but well we've we've surveyed a lot of Dulles's life his political thought and and especially his use of, of moral law in the Christian faith as you reflect now on what you've written um, you know in our day when there's there's a lot of talk of, of rights a lot less talk of, of things like duty um, what do you think can be learned today from Dulles's life and um, and maybe maybe a broader question what what are you what are you hoping that readers will take away from the book uh, yeah so i think that uh, it's it's it it's deeply um significant to look back at, at a life lived like dollars and also look back at the times that he lived in and um there's a lot of wisdom for us to gain when we when we consider you know a man in his times a person in their times and Dulles is uh, no exception to that. Dulles as Secretary of State, his career as Secretary of State, Dulles was an adult in the room. Dulles was a deeply thoughtful person. 
he didn't uh, I mean he, he had hobbies right he loved the outdoors and he loved reading mystery novels and things but he truly devoted his life to the good of the country he wasn't in his office of secretary of state for primarily personal reasons now it's true that he always wanted to be secretary of state it was an ambition that he had from his younger days and Becoming Secretary of State was the fulfillment of a lifelong dream for him. So it's not that he didn't have any personal stake in it, but he did have a sense of public service, um, you know, in a way that sometimes you don't see today in the same, quite the same way. Um, and Dulles was a deeply thoughtful person. He was, he took ideas seriously and he took his job very seriously. One, one funny story about him, his personality he would sometimes uh, make people feel awkward, um, especially around the in cabinet meetings. In cabinet meetings, I believe it was Richard Nixon that told the story. When he was asked a question um, in a cabinet meeting, he would often just pause and stare at the ceiling to uh, obviously frame his answer. But his pauses were very long pauses. And when he would stare at the ceiling or he would stare at the table for... 60 seconds, 120 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then he would, what he was doing was carefully framing a response that would be as precise as he could possibly give. And I think that that is a, and he would amaze his, you know, people around him with his response. It was deeply logical, very precise, and very exact, answering the question. He didn't dodge questions, you know, he didn't, he didn't, um, prevaricate. Um, he didn't, uh, you know, uh, distract the person asking the question. Um, he, he answered questions as thoughtfully and as precisely as he could. That's something I think that's lacking today. And, you know, I think Dulles provides us a model for someone who is an adult in the room. He's also someone that, um, you know, religion is a part of the human, um, is part of human nature and it's, we all have deep, deeply held beliefs and convictions that are transcendent and imminent. And we apply those, those aspects of our worldviews to the way we approach problems. Diplomats do the same thing. And Dulles was very open about his faith. And, um, but Dulles was also not a dogmatist. He didn't, um, he didn't you know, uh, hew to a very narrow kind of fundamentalist or kind of a narrow religious um, worldview that didn't, that couldn't be applied to a lot of people, you know, broad ranges of people, even of other faiths. Um, and I think that that, in, in a sense, is helpful as well for a diplomat um, to kind of attempt to bring broad audiences of people around transcendent ideas like the moral law, um, like, uh, you know, uh, the power of moral forces, something that he used to talk about all the time. Whereas I personally, I'm a conservative Christian, so I don't agree with his um, views on the virgin birth and on the inerrancy of scripture and things like that. But, but I do think that there is something to be said about bringing sort of broad ideas that large groups of people can kind of gather around for the sake of, uh, of a united front in a world that is, you know, uh, deeply opposed to freedom and, and uh, rights and liberties that the United States has been committed to. So I think that's helpful. And I think it's a helpful kind of line of wisdom for us to gain from, from Dallas's life and Dallas's, Dallas's career. Yeah, that's well said. Well, Dr. Wilson, it's been great to talk about your book. But before we wrap up, uh, tell us what you plan to work on next. Yeah, well, I'm working now on a book on, um, it's actually a, 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 I'm calling it a conservative primer on religious liberty and um, trying to argue historically and also from contemporary times and philosophically that, uh, that religious freedom in America should be understood as an exchange between responsibilities and privileges, um, duties um, and rights that religious liberty is not just a right to be claimed without regard for others. Um, 
So that's what I'm working on now. And I'm also uh, in the process of, um, you know, looking into writing another religious biography of uh, Margaret Thatcher, this one of Margaret Thatcher. So we'll see how that goes. Terrific. Well, for now, thanks for writing this book. It's called God's Cold Warrior. It's the life and faith of John Foster Dulles. It's out this month with Erdman's Publishing. And Dr. Wilsey, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Zach, thanks so much for having me. This has been a treat. All right. And thanks, everyone, for listening. I'll see you again next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.